It is a interesting morning. Um, I know that we all feel a little bit heavy, a little bit just, hmm. And I, and I want to encourage us to use that feeling, that sense of just anxiety, the, same, the sense of unsettledness. Um, use that to remind yourself that this truly is not our home, uh, that this is not where we find comfort, this is not where we find ultimate peace, and it certainly is not where we find our hope. Um, so use, use this, this sense, this feeling, this mood this morning that is kind of on us. It's just you can't escape it. Use it to remind you that this is not your home. Um, I am thankful that Pastor Chris saw it fit that um, a few of our elders would come and pray for us. Um, and three of them sitting, well, there's two of them right there and Paige in the back. Um, these are the men that lead our church. Get to know them. Uh, they are faithful men of God who, who love uh, you and care for you, pray for you, um, and I'm so thankful that they came and prayed for us this morning. Uh, one quick announcement, we, uh, Chad, I don't mean to, tonight, tonight we will not have any activities, um, so enjoy that time at home with your families resting. Uh, we will not have children's church uh, and the adult uh, activities on this campus, as well as Owasso are going to be um, canceled for this evening, so just know that and plan accordingly. We're going to continue our study in 1 Samuel, which has been a wild ride. You know, last week we took a look at this unfolding narrative with, with this, this rising of David. And David was on this up climb here, and he was, he was ascending and gaining popularity and gaining favor. And yet at the exact same time, Saul was on this decline. He was descending in favor, and he became more and more ate up with this jealousy and just could not escape this desire to kill David. And he came up with all these different ideas of how he could get rid of this guy who he was jealous of, who was threatening him, and he wanted to send him away. And, and, he, and he just kept trying to come up with all these different plots and snares, and even including his daughters, uh, that they might ensnare him, and he was, he was willing to go and kill um, many of God's men. He would murder priests. There was nothing that he was not willing to do in order to have his will done. And where we left off was that basically uh, Saul and his men had David and his men surrounded, and they were basically in a place that they could not escape, and the end was near. It was not looking good for David. But according to the providence of God, God sent the Philistines to go and attack. So that word came. So the word came to Saul that Saul should stop pursuing David and go tend to this Philistine matter. And so what we saw was that this was a place that was called the Rock of Escape. And you see that in 23 verses 28. It says, so Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there. Uh, and so you see that that's where we left off. And we saw that, that this beautiful idea that the salvation that God provides is sure, sweet, and sustained. Um, and that even if the way is challenging and unpleasant for a time, God's presence is faithful and pleasant. And we're going to continue that thought this morning. Um, when we look here at chapter 24, we're going to actually see that David has the opportunity to take Saul's life 
And David would be absolutely justified in doing so from a human perspective. This is, we're talking about a guy who tried to kill David um, more than once, but two, two cases at least explicitly where he tried to spear him and pin him to the wall. And remember last week we said, you know, it's like David still hung around after the first time. I don't know about you, but I would, I would be leaving. I'd be quitting that job after the first time my boss tried to spear me. But David stuck around for a little bit, but then God delivers him. And sends him uh, on his own path, and he sustains and saves David time and time again. But here we have a clear, clear example where godly restraint is demonstrated. David has the opportunity to do something, and that would, from a humanly perspective, solve a lot of his problems. If he would just kill Saul, if he would just take it upon himself to take this guy out, Humanly speaking, a lot of his problems would be done away with. But what we see is that David is clear on this, um, that he will not, he will not sin against God's anointed. And so even in these moments, we've got to recognize that we are not entitled to sin, even if it seems that our circumstances would justify it. Because when we look at David, it seems that his circumstances would justify it. And that's actually what his friends say. They're like, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Do it. Take him out now. And if you just look at this from a human perspective, David would be justified. But he says, I'm not entitled to sin even when this looks like I could be justified in doing so. So this is what we've got to keep in our minds as we begin our, our, our study this morning. And so I want to ask you um, this question. I'm going to put up on the screen. When you have the chance to get even, what are you most likely to do? This is a tough question. I ask myself this question, and I ask you this question. When you have the chance to get even, what are you most likely to do? So I want to restate the doctrine that I want to defend this morning. is Godly restraint is trusting that God's purposes will be accomplished while we wait upon the Lord. Godly Restraint is trusting that God's purposes will be accomplished while we wait upon the Lord. So we have to ask ourselves whether or not we believe this, but I'm going to give you some reasons for why I believe we should believe it, and we take them directly from Scripture as we witness uh, the account here of David sparing Saul's life and demonstrating and practicing godly restraint. So the three stops that we're going to make this morning is conflict among God's anointed this is a very interesting scenario that we're going to take a look at. Conflict among God's anointed. Second, we're going to take a look at what David got wrong, because actually he gets something wrong in this narrative, and, and he tells us about it. And then we're going to finish up with what David got right and what we can learn from what David got right. So one, conflict among God's anointed. How, how, how should we deal with that? Two, what David got wrong and what we should learn from that. And then three, what David got right. So the first stop, let's take a look at this. Um, so... Obviously, in verses 1, it says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engadai. So there's this interesting idea that Saul had to leave and had to do his work, and then he comes back. Can you, can you imagine this? This is kind of what I think of like when I think of this here. It's like, you know, you got to work Monday through Friday, and then Saturday comes, and you get to pursue your pleasures. You get to pursue your obsessions. You get to pursue your hobbies. It's like, it's like Saul had to go do some real work. Now that the real work is done, now he's free to go and indulge in his obsession once more. What was his obsession? Hunting down and killing David. There was nothing else in his mind. The only reason he stopped doing that is because he had to go to work for a little bit. 
Right? If he, he knew, he's like, I, okay, I gotta put this down. You know, I, gotta, I can't do that right now. I gotta go back to work. But as soon as that's done, I'm gonna get right back to this. He was ate up. And I see this um, clearly that he was returning to his obsession. And Saul was driven from not his anointing, but from his jealousy and fear. There's something we've got to look at, two things. One, that Saul was not, he was not working from his anointing. But that doesn't mean Saul was not anointed. So when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness. So he, he is heading here, back out there on the hunt, to kill David. But Saul was not simply elected or appointed. Do you remember the case? He was anointed by Samuel just as David had been. And that was not something that was lost on David. And so we've got to have this in our mind correctly that we have two people, two men of God who are anointed of God, yet one of them is not really a man of God. Does that make sense? But that doesn't make him any less anointed. He had been chosen, appointed for this task. And as long as he's alive, he remains God's anointed. And David literally says that. So here it is, that Saul is using his kingly resources to pursue David. Where did Saul get these kingly resources? From his anointed position as king of Israel. He, you, you can't just show up and say, I'm going to choose 3,000 of the best men and I'm going to go hunt this one guy for my purposes. You have to be somebody in order to do that. He was somebody. He was the Lord's anointed. He was given this job and it was an abuse of his power to do what he's doing now. Yet David says, I will not put my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. See that in verse 10? It was clear to David that he could not do violence to Saul, even though he would be humanly justified in doing so. For Saul had literally tried to kill him several times, and now he's leading a hunting expedition with 3,000 of Israel's best fighters. And when it says that he, he chose 3,000 men, Saul took 3,000 chosen men of all of Israel and went to seek David. What do you think the qualifications were for you to be chosen by Saul. Are you good at hunting down and killing people? That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for, hey, do you have skills in growing crops? Are you able to sow? No, he's like, can you wield a weapon? Can you track down somebody? Do you know how to, to employ, uh, employ military tactics against somebody? Do you know how to effectively take someone's life? That's the 3,000 men that Saul had chosen. He had chosen 3,000 of Israel's best fighters. And here's David, this poor man, running for his life, leading a ragtag militia, trying to stay alive as he flees from Saul. But even then, David is resolved not to succumb to the temptation to do violence against the Lord's anointed. He says it, I will not put my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. So what do we do? David literally says, the only thing that I can do is let God settle this matter. Take a look at it. Uh, we see it in verses 12 uh, and, and 15, if you'll look over there. Well, actually, 
yeah, start in 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you to see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? So it's this interesting thing you look at here, back up to 12 again. We jump down to 14 first, but take a look at 12. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. Look at this. It's an interesting thing that he goes on to say, is that if there's going to be any way that this thing is solved, it's not going to be by me, and it's not going to be by you. Because basically what has happened is that, that, that David rightly sees this, that if God can anoint two people, if God can anoint two men, then God must resolve the resulting conflict. Because they're in this position because both of them have been anointed. Do you get that? It's such a strange thing for us to see this because from a human perspective, we would just say, do away with Saul. Saul's done. His thing is over. He's, God has rejected him. God has said through Samuel that your kingdom will be taken from you and another, a neighbor who is better than you, will take your place. So it's already laid out. This is what's going to happen. So why not just get to the punchline? Why not just make this thing happen? But David says, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. But he says, I have not sinned against you. Though you may hunt my life to take it, may the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Imagine this. The only option you have We've got three, but there's only one real one. When we think about these type of things, you know, in, in psychology they talk about, uh, you, you know, flight, fight, you know, or freeze. Well, David can't stay. He doesn't have an option to just stay put and just see what happens when Saul gets there. When Saul gets there, we know what's going to happen. His life will be taken from him. He doesn't really have the option to fight because he can't put his hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, I think, um, just follow with me here. This is not in the scripture, but I think if one of Saul's men came up and it came to him and David and they had to duke it out, I think David would take him out. I don't think it would be a good idea for any one of Saul's men to go after David one-on-one -on -one, because I think David is going to kill you. That's Rob's opinion. That's not in the scripture, but I believe that. Because the reason he's not touching Saul is not because he doesn't think he can take Saul. The reason he's not touching Saul is not because they don't have beef. They have problems. He's not touching Saul because he recognizes that he and he alone is the Lord's anointed in that, in that camp. So he does not raise his hand against him. So his only option is to continue to flee Trusting God for salvation. He literally has no other option. He can't stay there. If he does, he will die. He can't truly fight Saul. Because in doing so, he'd be putting his hand against the Lord's anointed. And his only option is to flee. Trusting God for his salvation. So let's move on to our second stop here to take a look at what David got wrong. And you may be thinking, what? David didn't get anything wrong, but he did. And he tells us he did. But it's an interesting case here as we start to look at it. Uh, take a look 
Uh, let's go back actually up to, to two and put it in context for just a second. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel uh, and went to seek David and his men in the wilderness of the wild goat rocks. Okay. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. So you think of that along the path here, they would have these sheepfolds, and basically there would be these uh, stone rock walls where you could put your sheep in for the night and basically close them off so they couldn't wander off and, and, and get away from you. And nearby there were some caves. And so literally, uh, in the Hebrew, it says um, that he went in to cover his feet. So you can imagine what that process was like. Uh, went in to use the restroom. Okay. So what's interesting here is that when, when, when he would do this, he would, he would get privacy. And I don't, you know, it's kind of one of those strange things because we think of it in our time, you know, the president's not going to go anywhere where the Secret Service people aren't. They're going to be with you. You're going to go to the cave, you're going to go to the cave with one of them. But in this case, Saul goes off, thinks that they're completely alone. And so there seems to be some distance between him and his men. And he goes in in the privacy of this cave to do some bio business. And in there, this is where, this is where David goes Wrong. All right. So it says, uh, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. So they're trying to interpret this for him. Say, Remember back then when God said your enemy would be delivered to you? Well, here it is. Right? Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as that shall seem good to you. So this is the advice of David's men. So it does not say. It does not say David said, Hmm, let me think. You make a good point there. Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't say. It says, the very next thing is what David does. Then David arose and stealthily, okay, he, he, in secret, because if he was caught, this would change everything. He couldn't just rush in there and, and, and mess with Saul. Think of, think, of the, think of his heart rate had to have been through the roof, sneaking up on Saul as he's using the restroom to do this. What does he do? Arose stealthily, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. That's verse 5. So what's interesting here, uh, we have to ask, why did David's heart strike him? Because cutting off a corner of Saul's robe was laying claim to the kingdom symbolically. Do you remember as Saul uh, and Samuel, whenever Samuel was getting away from Saul, he tried to grab onto his robe and it tore. And, Saul, and Samuel says that just as you've torn this, so the kingdom shall be torn from you. So there's symbolism in this. And it was Saul's robe that was a visual representation of his kingly status. So you think of, it's just not just any old robe. This robe would be something that the king would wear that everyone would know. You're the king. You're the guy. You look a little different than the rest. This was his this was his particular kingly robe, and it signified something here. I don't believe this was lost. So David cutting the corner of Saul's robe was a symbolic claim to the kingdom. You know, even though he spared Saul's life, the act of cutting his robe was too far for his conscience to bear. It was too far. Against the Lord's anointed, it was too bold a move to even hint at removing or laying claim to that which only God could deliver. So I believe that Saul, whenever he dropped his robe off to go use the restroom and David going in there to cut a piece of it, it seemed right in the moment. I can, I can picture David saying, well, at least I'm not killing him. And then as soon as he does it, it hits him. Conviction sets in that he knew that what he had done 
was wrong. And this is what led him to rebuke his men, right? So he, 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 he says, why did you guys even try to tell me this was the right thing to do? You see this? It says, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand out against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Do you see this? Uh, the, the, the original language basically says when it, when it says that he said to his men, it was like he tore them apart. That's what the commentary say. He, he tore them apart. I don't know how far off they were in the cave, or, but I know when he's given the men, you know, the rundown of how wrong you guys are, how wrong I am in doing this. But I imagine that, that, that it was a, a pretty tense moment because here they are saying, take him, here the Lord has provided him, and now David goes and does this, and he goes back to his men and tears them apart. He, 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 gives, them, he gives them the straight to the heart talk of you're wrong and I'm wrong. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. What thing? Cutting off the corner of his robe. He equates that to putting out his hand against him. And why is it a problem? He says, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Once again, you can't leave this concept. David is convicted that even this action, with the symbolism that comes with it, was too far it was too far, even though he did not kill Saul. It was too far. Taking things into his own hands. And I believe that we can go wrong when we go too far and laying claim to what only the Lord can grant. You know, I believe that this is part of what it means when we, we fail to trust the plan of God. We start to do things that we shouldn't do because we are not willing to stop and trust God. When we are not practicing godly restraint, I think the root of it is we are not trusting God. And David in this, he's going to use that corner. He's going to use that corner for evidence here in a second. And that's okay. God, God uses that, that whole thing, right? Um, but in the moment, he knows that the ends don't justify the means. Do you get that? A lot of times we only focus on the, well, see, he could, he could throw that, you know, wave it up there and say, Saul, see what I've got. And be like, oh, what a good boy, David. What a good boy. You didn't kill me when you could have. That's, that's the only part of it we think about. We skip verse 5 through the rest and we just, like, well, there shouldn't be a problem here. David's wrong, right? David shouldn't feel bad about this. But David's like, no, this was wrong for me to do. But isn't it interesting? He doesn't stop there. He says, okay, I will use this to, to prove to Saul that I'm not his enemy. But he, but he confesses his sin. He gets, he, he, he gets it right. By saying, even this was too far for me and stretching out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But when we go too far, it is when we don't trust God and we begin to do four things. There's many other things that we do, but I want to list four things and explain them just briefly. When we fail to trust God, we begin to busy ourselves when we should resist ourselves. And that means busy ourselves working to bring about our own will. That's, that's the image that we have is when we are not trusting God and we're like, unless I do something, this will not get done. We think there's no way that I can wait any longer. I've got to do something to bring this thing about. So when we fail to trust God, we busy ourselves when we should resist ourselves, when we should say, stop, stop it. 
Two, we plan when we should pray. We start to look and we start to say, okay, I'm going to analyze this, then I'm going to get a plan together, and I'm going to execute this plan, and that'll be a good thing. Now, don't hear me say that planning is a bad thing. Planning is not a bad thing. The order is what's important. We shouldn't plan when we should pray. We should pray so that our plans would be pleasing to the Lord. Planning is a good thing. You should plan. But your planning should not be independent of true, heartfelt prayer where you say to the Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And that is hard. But that's part of what it means to exercise godly restraint when we are tempted to sin, when we are tempted to justify our actions and not wait upon the Lord. So we busy ourselves when we should resist ourselves. We plan when we should pray. And third, we worry when we should wait. And worrying is a type of doubt that is focused on what could happen if God doesn't provide. Think about that. Worrying is a type of doubt that focuses on the fear of what could happen if God does not provide. Worrying is not good. It's never been good. So we are tempted to worry when we should wait. The opposite of that is to have faith that God will provide, which should quiet our worries and enable us to wait. And then four, we make a way when we should make, excuse me, we make a way when we should wait for deliverance. And I believe this is what we do when we believe that the best comes only when you make it happen. When you believe that the best only comes when you make it happen. When I believe the best only comes when I make it happen. That's when I'm tempted to make a way when I should wait for deliverance. And so David is here. He, 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 he got some of this wrong. Um, we can't go too far because the scripture doesn't, doesn't unpack all of this for us. These are some observations. Um, but he clearly, he clearly knew that he went too far against the Lord's anointed. And it was too bold of a move to even hint at removing or laying claim to what only God could deliver and grant. So we have to take some of these lessons and understand that even the sense of which what might appear as us making our own path, we've got to repent of. But what did David get right? And I'm just going to give you this quick summary here. Um, trust God to settle the matter. That's what David got right. Okay, You want to get it right? Here's the, here's the answer. I'm giving you the answer before we even unpack this. Trust God to settle the matter. It really, really, really comes down to that. Do you trust God to settle the matter? Whatever it is, do you trust God to settle the matter? And take a look at this. We actually see it in verse 17 uh, and, and 18. So I'll start back up in 16 just for a little more context. As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. I want to pause there for just a second. So imagine, here's the scenario. So Saul went in the cave, did his thing. David cut off a piece of his robe. When he was holding it in his hand, I imagine he thinks, when he looked at I mean, I don't know what the colors were, the symbols on it, I don't know, but this was the king's robe. You shouldn't have a piece of the king's robe in your hand. And he says, ugh. Then he says to his men, we should not have done this, I should not have done this. But now the next step is, Saul leaves the cave, and I imagine that he's probably a good ways away. It probably wasn't like David ran up right to him and was like, hey, look what I got, and then Saul swings at him. I don't think that was the case. I think he's probably a safe distance away and says, Hey, and he goes, is that your voice, my son? 
I think they're talking to each other over distance here. But it was pretty clear that he could hold up the piece and say, take a look at this. And Saul could look and go, oh, wow, wow, okay. But what happened? Is this your voice, my son, David? Interesting words of affection for a guy who's trying to kill you. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. This is a strange roller coaster ride with this guy. One day you're up, one day you're down, well, you're this way, he's trying to kill you, trying to ensnare you with his daughters, murdering uh, 80-something priests. Had to leave for a little bit, but now he's back on the hunt, just waiting to find you so he can murder you. And now he hears your voice and he begins to cry. What is wrong with you? But so it happens. Saul's heart, for whatever, whatever reason, in that moment was softened. And he says some good things. Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord, listen, when the Lord put me into your hands. Isn't this interesting? I believe that there's a key here. What did David get right? I'm not going to go so far as to say that this was a test of God, that God would say, here, David, let me put Saul right here in front of you. I'm not going to go as far to say that, but I will say that God appointed this opportunity. And David got it right in that he did not repay evil. He literally relied and trusted on God to settle the matter. And this was not lost on Saul when he says, And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me. You've dealt well with me, right? And that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. Now, Saul believes in the sovereignty of God. He believes that this was no accident, that he ended up in the same cave with David and his men. Do you get that? This is a guy who's running after the man of God, but is not lost on the sovereignty of God. It's such a weird, conflicted world to live in. You know, from an outsider's perspective, when we say, will you get this right, why don't you just repent and stop? Like, literally just stop. Because he doesn't. You can read on. He doesn't stop. He doesn't get it right. But you look at this and you're like, you're right. But 19 says, for if a man finds his enemy, he will let him go away safe? It's a rhetorical question. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king. What? Who's talking? Saul. He's speaking truth now. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And he only has one ask. He says, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Interesting, isn't it? Saul goes home. David goes to a place of more security and safety. He's like, I don't think I trust you. Pretty wise, right? But 
for whatever reason, God used this moment to not only spare David once again, but he used this moment to call off the hunt and he used this moment for Saul to see clearly even for a brief period of time and to speak truth, to see his wickedness and to speak the truth that would happen, that David would be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in his hand. But then he asked for mercy. When that day happens, he's not saying if, he says when that day happens, will you grant me mercy and not wipe my name off the face of the earth? Because that's what kings would do. When they come to power, kill them all. Anyone who even resembles the old dynasty, if you will, kill them all, be done. And he's saying, when this happens, don't do this to me. Isn't this interesting? Because what is Saul's aim in killing David? He's a threat to his kingdom. And he's in power. And he's using his power to try to eliminate his threats. And he says, David, don't be like me. When you have the power, don't use your power to eliminate your threats in my household. Isn't that interesting? And what does David say? And David swore this to Saul. So David got it right. He did not give in to the temptation to feel entitled to sin, even when it appeared the providence of God had supplied the opportunity. And it seemed like the providence of God was on his side, that God had delivered him into his hands. But he knew that it would be sin to kill Saul. And he would not justify his violence, even though Saul meant him harm. Do you see this? Literally, David demonstrates godly resistance and not taking the matter into his own hands. And by that, he demonstrates that he trusts God to settle the matter. So I want us to end this morning with a couple of questions. Do you trust God with your life and dignity? Do you trust God with your life? What does that mean? That means everything that can be encompassed into your existence, which means not only does, do you trust God for his provision, for health, for your hope, go down the list, but do you also trust him for your dignity? Meaning, the way in which you are perceived, the way in which you are thought of, do you trust God in that matter? And as I asked the question early on, I said, when you have the chance to get even, what are you most likely to do? I believe that this is a good question for whether or not we trust God to settle the matter. Do we take things into our own hands? And so I want to list a couple of things that I think we should trust God in. First, our guilt and our shame. Do you trust Christ with your destiny? Because beyond all of this, all of the worldly things that there are, that we could trust God with, even our lives, no more important thing to trust God with than is our eternal destiny. Because this life is short, and this week as we're struggling through all this, this uh, you know, the coronavirus and all this just unrest, it is such a perfect reminder for us to think of this is not our home, how quickly everything falls apart. Do not hope here. But what is your destiny? And who are you trusting with that destiny? And if it's anything other than Christ, you will be let down. And I want to read to you a couple of things that I wrote that I think we should wrestle with. Christ stands ready to save all who will trust in him. 
do this. Resist the temptation to try to save yourself through your own performance, intellect, talent, resources. Because here's the key. Those who trust in anything but the work of Christ and the mercy of God for salvation commit themselves to be disappointed in this life and in the next. Your disappointment will be great here, but it will be even greater there if you trust anything other than Jesus Christ for your destiny. So with that said, I'd like us to stand and begin to close the service. Father, I pray that we can trust you with the matter. If the matter be our guilt and shame, Father, I pray that you take that off of our hands. Remind us that the gospel says that you sent Jesus Christ to save sinners. And that Jesus Christ stands ready to save all who will trust in him. He is the great physician who came to heal not those who are well, but those who are sick. And there's not a single person who will be turned away who come to the feet of Jesus Christ to be healed of their sickness and disease. And as we come to the great physician, we do not say our sins used to be greater than they are now. Heal this little morsel of illness that remains. We say we are as sick as we've ever been, and if you don't save us, we shall die. Father, may we reject our own sense of self-righteousness. May we reject our own sense of being able to do it through our talent, our intellect, or our own holiness and morality, our own ability to obey your word. May we reject every bit of that and cling only to the cross of Christ. May we imagine ourselves shipwrecked. nothing but the cross. Father, may we also trust you in the conflict. As we live in this world, we are not free from the worries of this world while we live in this world, yet there is a right way to approach these things, and that is to trust in you to settle the matter. Demonstrating godly restraint that when we have the opportunity to gain the upper hand by ill means, we resist the temptation to fall into sin, even when we may justify ourselves by the world's standards. May we trust you in the conflict. May we trust you in our poverty, in our physical, real poverty. Because there are many who have needs. And in the face of this economy and whatever's going to happen, even if we find ourselves impoverished, even as Hannah says in 1 Samuel 2, that you make rich and you make poor. That if you choose to make us poor, Father, may we trust you in the matter. Recognizing that even our poverty is part of your sovereignty. And in our poverty, may we find contentment for as long as you would have us to live there. Once again, trusting not in this world. And Father, in a very real way, may we trust you in the matter of sickness. As many truly are suffering, many are dying. May we trust you. Lean on you for strength and hope. In Jesus' name.
continue to worship.